Sarah Plain and Tall was written by Patricia McLaughlin and published in 1985. In 1986, it won a slew of prestigious kid-lit awards, including the Newbery Medal, the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction, and the Golden Kite Award. It was adapted into a movie for Hallmark in 1991, and sometime around 1996 or 1997, I borrowed it from my elementary school library and took the Associated Reading Comprehension quiz on Accelerated Reader. I'm not sure how well I scored on that quiz, but let's just say for the sake of argument that I got all of the questions right. Now it's 2021, and I think it's time for Sarah Plain and Tall to get the SSR treatment. It's happening right here on episode 147. Sarah Plain and Tall has the unique distinction of being the shortest book we've ever covered on the podcast, but it still offered my guest and I so much food for thought, which you'll hear discussed in great detail over the next hour. Sarah Plain and Tall tells the story of a family living in a pretty vague time and place, somewhere on the American Western Prairie and in the late 19th century. We meet Caleb, Anna, and their father, who is looking for a new wife. As was apparently fairly typical during this time period, he places an ad in a newspaper, and Sarah shows up from Maine to see if she'll be a good fit for the family. Can she play a motherly role for Caleb and Anna? Can she build a relationship with their dad? Can she get over her homesickness for Maine and the water? When she learns to drive the wagon herself, will she go away and disappear forever? These are the primary concerns of the book, and we chat about all of them on episode 147. You'll also hear us chat about whiteness, historical revisionism, and the historical fiction genre as a whole. We discuss Patricia McLaughlin's sparse, beautiful writing and what this book has to say about myth-making. I share my findings about the prevalence of mail-order brides in the late 19th century. And at the top of the show, we talk quite a bit about our lives as young readers more generally, the way we measure time by our reading, the way we connect specific words to the books we read as kids, and, of course, accelerated reader. My guest on today's episode is Olivia Cole, who is a writer from Louisville, Kentucky. She is the author of the new adult series, Panther in the Hive and a young adult series, which includes A Conspiracy of Stars and An Anatomy of Beasts. Her essays, which often focus on race, whiteness, and womanhood, have been published at Bitch Media, Real Simple, The LA Times, HuffPost, Teen Vogue, Gay Mag, and others. Olivia's next book, The Truth About White Lies, is out in March of 2022. You can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at RantingOwl. I really appreciated what Olivia had to say about Sarah Plain and Tall, and I am so thankful she took the time to join me for this episode. Be sure you're following SSR at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. The SSR Book Club, which is affectionately known as the SSRBC because I love an acronym, is now officially in its third month. In June, the SSRBC is reading Ballet Shoes and Christie's Great Idea, which is the first book in the Babysitter's Club series. It's not too late to join us for free to read one or both books. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com slash Club or click the link in SSR's Instagram bio to get more information and sign up. Our volunteer book club leaders are absolutely amazing and you're going to love hanging out with them. As you may already know if you've been listening to the pod for a long time, SSR is a literal one-woman show. In addition to hosting the pod, I handle every single aspect of putting it together, including connecting with guests, editing the interviews, promoting each episode, and getting things lined up for these intros, which, fun fact, I am actually very bad at. If you would like to support this passion project, there are a few ways you can do it, and I can assure you that it would mean so much to me if you did. Leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, 
post a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story or tell a friend that they have to go check out SSR. You can take your support to the next level by shopping for SSR merch at www.ssrpodcast.com shop or by joining the Patreon community. As a patron, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're playing a really active part in keeping SSR going strong. And for as little as a dollar per month, at each tier, you can get different rewards, including bonus episodes, newsletters, reading recap videos, Patreon parties, and more. I love having the opportunity to get to know SSR's Patreon supporters in this closer-knit community, and I would encourage you to check it out if you love books and the podcast. Get more details and next steps at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. As much as I value your support for my podcast, I also really value the support that we as an SSR family can offer to independent bookstores everywhere. Libro.fm is a great way to do this, even if you don't have easy access to a brick-and-mortar indie where you live. With Libro.fm, you can support independent booksellers instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same, and they come at no extra cost. If you're a Libro.fm newbie, you can get a discount on your first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm by using code SSRPOD when prompted on the site. You'll get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. With the world beginning to open up again and travel becoming more of a possibility, you're going to need audiobooks to keep you entertained. Why not buy them from Libro.fm? Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Olivia. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. We have a real classic on our hands today, a book that I can only describe in my personal experience as one that I read for a little program that we had at my elementary school called Accelerated Reader. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, I am. Yeah. So I definitely read this book for Accelerated Reader, aka AR, as we used to call it as, you know, the cool reader kids. I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with Accelerated Reader. And I did a lot of Accelerated Reader reading when I was a kid. But for some reason, this book, Sarah Plain and Tall by Patricia McLaughlin, really does stick out to me as one of the books that I read for that program. What are your memories of this book? Do you have any like specific memories of reading it? Why did you decide to read it for the podcast? I'd just love to like know a little bit more about your background with it. Yeah, it's funny. I had not remembered Accelerated Reader until you said that just now. (laughs) And it just put me back in elementary school. Um, Yes, I do remember Accelerated Reader. And I can't, what grade were you in? Do you remember when you read this? Oh, um, so it came out in 1985. So and I was born a few years after that. So I feel like I probably read it really early because it would have been out and I read everything I could get my hands on. So I'm going to say like probably first or second grade. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. I I was at two elementary schools and my memory of this is at my first one. So I must have been probably in second grade. And I don't have memory of reading this. I have memory of it being read to me uh, in a classroom. But I remember there being 
I think the reason this one stuck with me is because there was like a whole unit on it. Like I am having memories of that, of like uh, sitting there and talking about it. And I remember us, you know, we would read it and answer questions. And then there, I think we watched a movie. I think there was a movie. So whenever the movie was made, I think we read it after that because I have very like visual memories of this in my head too. So when you presented this as an option, I was like, Wait a minute. Like that that's why I kind of went for this one because I don't think I recognized some of the other books you had on the list. And but this one, I was like, wait, no, I I I I was ready to read it just to reread it so that I could, you know, kind of tap back into those memories. But now reading it again, I was like, I do not remember this book. Like I remember the the title very well. I remember, you know, the 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 memories of the movie, but the plot itself, I really, you know, it it didn't stay with me. The only thing that really I remembered was the when they had the squall. I remember that was when I heard the word squall or you know read the word squall for the first time and the the barn and being, you know, them having the animals in the barn with them. Uh that was like, oh yeah, I do know this book. So, yeah, it, it was interesting to read it again. It kind of felt like the first time and like maybe like the first and a half time that I read it. Isn't it so weird how we connect like even a single vocabulary word to a book that we read or heard when yeah. we were kids? It's so strange. It is. And I feel like that happens so much with me. Like there was this thing I used to do when I was a kid. I don't not do whatever that would happen to me as a kid where I would be reading. And sometimes I don't know what this is. This is metaphysical or what, but I would, I would be reading and my eyes would get stuck on a page in the word or a word on the page. And then I would just be looking at this word and then someone in the room would say it Mm. randomly. It was so bizarre. And squall was one of those words where I, maybe it's just you know, I don't know, like my brain trying to connect dots and then, you know, it just happens like that. But, but yeah, that squall, I remember chasm being one. Uh, I think a lot of like really, you know, really intense readers as kids, like we're, we learn so many words on the page and so we don't hear them out loud. So then we say them wrong. Yeah. And so I was always trying to make sure that that didn't happen to me, but of course it happened all the time. Um, I don't know if I pronounced squall right or wrong. I don't know how you can get that one wrong. But <laughs> yeah, chasm was one that I got made fun of for when I finally said it out loud. But you know, yeah, readers. But that's so funny. Yeah, the vocabulary, that one really stuck with me. Yeah, my best example of that is the word zweeback, which is not a word that you hear. But I remember reading Beverly Cleary books when I was a kid. And I think that she uses the phrase like zweeback crumbs in like a handful of her books. And I thought that was the coolest word when I read the books when I was a kid. And I remember like asking my mom what it meant and looking it up in the dictionary. And then I used to rent the like super grainy like VHS tapes of some of the um, like Ramona movies when I was a kid. And they don't say the words we back, but like the kids are covered in like cookie crumbs. And I was like, oh, we back crumbs. <laughs> it's such like a weird, I, I mean, I haven't read that word in so long. I think I did come across it when I reread Beezus and Ramona for the podcast a few years ago. But I think that's probably the only context in which that word has ever come up in my life. And yet I can't, <laughs> I can't shake it and I can't disconnect it from my memories of reading Beverly Cleary. That's so funny. I mean, you know, books like that, you know, I asked you like, what, you know, what grade were you in? Like, I feel like we measure our life in books in so many ways. What year in school, how old you were, what were you reading then? And that's, I mean, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the lines on the wall where they, you know, your parents have you stand and they measure how tall you are, except with books, (laughs) you know, like, 
how old were you when you were reading this and what was happening then? And, you know, I can usually remember, oh, if I was reading that, then that's, this is what I was into during that time. It's how we mark the passage of time, I guess. Totally. Listeners have heard me do exactly what you did a few minutes ago with like, okay, what school was I in? Because I moved a few times and I was growing up too. And often like, that's how I'll place my reading experience with a particular book is like imagining what school library I was sitting in when I found it. So yeah, I, I think it's so cool that that's how we mark our memories, especially our, our childhood experiences. And before we really dive into our discussion of Sarah Plain and Tall, the book, I did want to go back to your mention of the movie because I came across some info about the movie while I was researching for this conversation today. I had no idea that there was an adaptation, but there was. So there were actually four books after Sarah Plain and Tall that sort of covered the life of this family, which I also didn't know. I didn't know that it was a series. Wow, no. Yeah, but there are four other books called Skylark, Caleb's Story, More Perfect Than the Moon, and Grandfather's Dance. And the first three books in the series, so I assume that means Sarah Plain and Tall, Skylark, and Caleb's Story were the basis for three TV movies, which were produced and broadcast on the Hallmark Channel. They are part of the Hallmark Hall of Fame collection. And Patricia McLaughlin herself actually wrote the screenplays, which I thought was kind of interesting. They were Emmy nominated, which is impressive, and they starred a very, very young Glenn Close and Christopher Walken. What? I know. Wait, was he was he their dad? Yeah. Get out of here. That's odd. I know. It's I wild. It at all. I'm going to have to. Glenn Close, I can actually see. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. I have to. I have to look that one up because I I like him. He's so weird. I just wouldn't have seen him in in this. Wow. Yeah. I looked at the trailer um, a few minutes ago and I highly recommend it. I'll include it in the show notes for this episode as well, listeners. But it was a total trip, especially Christopher Walken, because I feel like I picture Christopher Walken like only looking a certain way. And I sort of feel like he's looked the same way for the last like 15, 20 years. And he does not look like that in this trailer. He's so young. So um, yeah, highly recommend going to check out that trailer. But in addition to being adapted into these made for TV movies, the story Sarah Plain and Tall was also turned into a one act children's musical that ran off Broadway in the summer of 2002. And then again in 2004 for a sold out three week run. So there's like a pretty cool adaptation history for this book too. Wow, people were into it. I mean, you know, that kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, white Americans love this kind of stuff. And, you know, like Little House on the Prairie Mm -hmm. and like all that. So it's like, yeah, that doesn't, that shouldn't surprise me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And it won a lot of awards. In 1986, it won the Newbery Medal, which is like the award in middle grade. It won the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction. It won the Golden Kite Award. So this book really got a ton of attention. Um, And as a 90s kid, like I remember eating it up. I remember that it was a book that my teacher and my librarian recommended to me. It was on Accelerated Reader as an option that you could get points for. So it was definitely like one of the big books of the era that I was growing up in. And I didn't really remember what it was about either. Um, So I was excited to kind of get back into it and see what was going on with Sarah Plain and Tall. First impressions. This book is so short. I know. I was like... Okay. I, you know, as I told you, I was, we were trying to schedule this. I was like, you know, we had to push it back a little bit because I got hit with two deadlines that I wasn't expecting. I was like, I want to make sure that I have plenty of time to read this book and go through it. And I sat there and now that my family is vaccinated my father's vaccinated, my dad was 
over playing with my daughter and I like sat down over in the corner and read this book in like 35 minutes. <laughs> I was like, this is not what I remember. I remember it being, you know, a hefty book, but no, it is very short, very short. Yeah. It's, I think the shortest book that we've ever covered on the podcast, it's like 67 pages. And then there's some bonus material in the edition that I have, which is the 30th anniversary edition. But even with that bonus material, it's maybe like 85. And I discovered that it's like, it's approximately like 9,000 words, which as a writer, I know. So I, I'm working on the first draft of my novel right now. And my goal, which is it's aggressive, but I try to write 5,000 words a week, which I know is a lot, but I'm like, oh, I was done months ago. If I'm writing Sarah Plain and Tall, why am I writing this like sweeping adult, like multi- perspective, intergenerational family drama. I'm just going to write Sarah Plain and Tall. Like I'm going to walk away and we're done. We're done because first impressions, you know, not a lot happens either. Yeah. You know, it's a very quiet book, which, you know, I'm a big fan of quiet books and reading this, I can see why, even though it didn't stay with me in a major way that the pieces of it that did stay with me, I can see why they did just because even though it's very simple, I mean, the, the writing is quite beautiful and it's, you know, just simple transitions and the observations. I'm, I'm a fan of quiet books. So yeah, the, the shortness. And then that surprised me too. I was like, oh, this is like not really, a, I mean, at least on the surface, you know, when you, as a child reading through, you would miss, I think, a lot of the nuances that are happening here. Yeah, I was reading an interview with Patricia McLaughlin, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode, but she talks about how when she reads her own writing back, She's struck by how she feels like her voice as a writer is so young in its simplicity. She talks about how like, I realize that my writing sounds and feels so much younger than I am, which I think is sort of fascinating to think about. And she also talks about how she feels like her writing style, which as you mentioned, is is really simple and sparse, is linked to the fact that she tends to write stories that are set on the prairie, the way that Sarah Plain and Tall is and how she grew up in that kind of an environment. And so she sort of feels like her writing has grown to reflect the settings that she writes about. That makes sense. And that's, that's lovely. Yeah. But the length of it really shocked me. And I was reading a review online. I think it was like a blogger review who the blogger had done what you and I are doing. She went back and she reread the book after many years. And and she sort of took the words right out of my mouth where she says that like, I couldn't believe that this book was so short because it loomed so large in my memory as a kid reader. And I think she had more of like a personal relationship with the book. Like it had meant more to her than it did to me when I was growing up. But this book was something that I remembered. It was like a big deal book in the 90s. So I was like, oh, it's going to be this like substantial novel. And it came in the mail and it was so teeny. So I do think it's it's proof that like you can pack a lot of punch in a short number of pages. And sometimes that sparse, simple, beautiful, quiet writing, as you said, can do so much more than uh, something a little bit lengthier. So that was my first impression. I'd love to talk a little bit about what your first impressions were of the character. So when the book opens, we meet Sarah, who is sort of our, uh, our, our main character. We're getting the story through her perspective and her brother, Caleb. And we find out that Caleb and Anna's mother passed away when Caleb was born. And so Anna has kind of this weird relationship with Caleb because she's kind of become his like main caretaker while their father is out doing like what fathers did in the late 19th century, like working the farm and doing these like very non-domestic kind of tasks. 
So she takes care of Caleb a lot, but she also sort of resents him because she lost her mother as a result of his like existence and his Mm -hmm. arrival into the world. What were your first impressions of these two characters? I thought that what was really interesting was like, we never really know how old they are. And that was something that I was wondering throughout the book. Mm -hmm. So that was a question that I had up front. But what did you think getting back in touch with them? Yeah, I, I, especially Anna, she's so observant. And I think, again, that's part of what stuck with me with this book, the in, in a very, like, kind of, I don't know, like, smoky way, I guess, that she watches everything and she's very, you know, self-aware. And I, you know, we didn't, we didn't really get a lot of her interior after those first, you know, maybe two chapters. I think she kind of establishes it early on and then, but it does stick with you um, in her impressions of, you know, her mother's kind of like the last things that she was saying to her, isn't he beautiful? It very, just so sad um, in her forgetting to say goodnight to her mother for that last time. And, you know, that very wise kind of awareness of, you know, isn't he beautiful? And she's, you know, like, well, no, not, not to me, you know, and how can, how can I see him as beautiful? And then the way that kind of lingers in her as a character, I thought was very moving, you know, this grief, but then also, you know, love for her, for her brother is kind of, you know, reluctant love for her brother, you know, and just having to be the one who carries the memory for your, for your, your younger sibling that you take care of, you know, he doesn't remember. So she's sort of tasked with being that memory, not just being the caretaker, but being the memory of her, of their mother also, and her probably wanting to forget some things, but also not wanting to forget anything, but then kind of also being wanted, wanting to be the keeper of those, you know, those things for herself. You know, I don't necessarily want to share these things. Haven't you already taken enough from me? And that, that was, yeah, painful to read. And I, but I was, I was surprised by the, the choices that McLaughlin made with Anna, as far as like, not letting that bitterness carry over to Sarah. And maybe I'm jumping the gun here, you know, as far as your questions, but yeah, I, you know, these days I feel like we get, I guess I shouldn't say these days because the parent trap was made, you know, what the original was made quite a while ago. But, you know, the impulse I feel like of making girls and, you know, young, young characters, uh, not bratty, that's not the right word, but, you know, like pushing back against like a replacement for mom, but Anna doesn't do that. And I expected her to based on that kind of sharp sadness that she has about the loss of her mother. And then the way she feels about Caleb, I I expected her to be like, well, I'm not going to like Sarah. That that's not how she is at all. That's a good point. And I was looking for that too. I think we've been conditioned to expect that, especially over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years or so. Like, I think that that's what we see in a lot of narratives about young girls who have either lost their mother or their parents are divorced and they're really protective of their father and, you know, wanting to make sure that they remain you know, if their mother can't be this sort of leading lady in their father's life, then they want to be and they sort of have to be the gatekeeper for their father. And uh, I think that that is what we're used to seeing. And I was expecting that in this book, because we do have a new woman coming to the family's life, Sarah herself of Sarah Plain and Tall. And that's really not Anna's reaction when Sarah arrives. I mean, she's she's cautious. And I think she's trying to manage Caleb's expectations of what's going to happen with Sarah. But it doesn't really seem like her first instinct is to like, keep Sarah away from their father or to try to like foil his attempts to bring her into the family. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, maybe part of that is, well, I mean, partially, she's is the caretaker and she's probably on some level like wanting help yeah but also you know they're out on the prairie and 
and there's, you know, little hints of this throughout, but just like how bored out of their skulls they are, you know, a lot of the time. So, you know, someone new is, is exciting. Um, and Sarah experiences that also when the, I can't remember their names, but the, the family comes to visit them and, you know, brings her chickens and it's like company. And you also get, you know, that I really like the subtlety that McLaughlin does there with like, you know, Sarah making a woman friend and how important that's going to be for her out there and how necessary it is. And, you know, but like loneliness, you know, loneliness as humans out here on the prairie as quote unquote settlers, which we'll talk about that. But yeah, and then also as women, you know, it's like Anna is kind of was initiated into that like womanly loneliness early because she didn't have a mother. And so she's been that person. So, you know, Sarah is a very important figure for her in on in multiple ways, I would say. Yeah. So you mentioned the word settlers. Um, and so I think it's time that we talk about a little historical context for this book, especially because interestingly, there's little to no historical context actually on the page in Sarah Plain and Tall, mm-hmm. which I sort of had mixed feelings about because when I was reading it, I, as a 30-year-old reader, had a lot of questions about like, okay, what year is this? Where exactly are they? Um, but in reading a few reviews, I found that a lot of other adult readers sort of felt like that was kind of part of the magic of the book um, because it sort of like exists unto itself in a way and it allows for it to be sparse and simple and quiet and to the point without bringing in all of this other historical information, which I also have a lot of questions about. Um, Listeners know uh, how I feel about this. We recently did an episode about The Long Winter, which is one of Laura Ingalls Wilder's books. Uh, A few years ago, we, we did an episode about Little House on the Prairie. So we have had this conversation before and listeners, I'll link to The Long Winter episode in this in the show notes for this one, because we really get into it on that one. But I think that it's really important for us to talk about the fact that even though it's not discussed on the page, what we're looking at here in reality is a family of white people and a community of white people who are living on the prairie because of the eradication of indigenous people, the murder of indigenous people. And there's the complete erasure of that narrative in this story, like like there's erasure of that narrative in so many other stories that depict this time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I what you said is it really kind of put some structure around some thoughts I was having as far as like why why reviewers, why, you know, white readers might enjoy that placelessness right. and datelessness. Because yeah, when you don't have any facts, there's nothing that can be argued with, right? It's it's like, well, who's to say this isn't, you know, <laughs> you know, like there's just right. the, the, the myth making that we do to kind of preserve that false innocence. But, it, you know, yeah, if you don't say where it is, if you don't say what what year it was, then that kind of creates this void, this fantasy void um, where these white people can exist innocently. And that's, I, you know, it's a very, you know, white impulse for us to, to seek that out. And, you know, I, I am, I'm, I'm fascinated by books like this because it's so, you know, yeah, like you, like you said, like, there's not a whole lot in this book that, you know, that quote unquote gives anything away. But there, you know, it, it, like the one mention of, you know, anything native is the the plant, you know, Indian paintbrush. Mm-hmm. And I'm always fascinated by stuff like that. Those little breadcrumbs in books like this, where that's named after people, you know, that it's, it's, they call it that for a reason, but the people that they named it for are absent. There's other books and I'm, I can't think of any, you know, but like, well, the, the, they describe something as a Pueblo, um, but 
the people who live in Pueblos are absent from the book. Um, so, so that's always so interesting to me, like the parts that we as white people, as white writers choose to stay. It's just so it says so much about like the destructive nature of white supremacy and colonialism, you know, that we make the people disappear, but then we keep the things that we like, <laughs> you know, that we, you know, like, well, Indian paintbrush. Yeah, that that's exactly what that's like. But then where are the people that you named that for? So that that's always fascinating to me when you see those little instances of, you know, of objects or foods or, you know, anything. But then, you know, I mean, just like even in contemporary books where, you know, white writers will have a book um, or even movies, you know, this this isn't just books, but, you know, where there's an entirely white cast of characters just doing white stuff, living their white lives, but then they eat tacos. Mm. And it's like, there's the tacos, but where are the people? Right. You know, so I, that's always very interesting to me. Yeah, I picked up on the Indian paintbrush reference too. And it felt sort of eerie to me where I was like, because mm. I do think that this book is so short. It doesn't really give you a lot of time even to think about the context for it because by the time you're into it, it's over. And so I did find that there were moments very few, but there were a few moments that like really took me out of it and reminded me that like, this is a real historical period, despite the fact that Patricia McLaughlin doesn't actually refer to it. Like this was a real time period. We're not talking about like a fantasy reality here. We're not talking about a fantasy universe. And this is a time period that I do know something about. And that is often, if not always portrayed in a way that makes white people more comfortable and sort of protects white people. And I say this as a white person from taking responsibility and accountability for an atrocious period of history that people just don't want to talk about. And so the fact that there's this like light mention of Indian paintbrush, it just felt like almost like ghost-like in some way where I was like, okay, so we're kind of acknowledging the native people that lived here and then were murdered by settlers like Caleb and Anna's family, but we're not actually going to, we're not actually going to like situate readers in time and place in any other way. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's exactly what it's like. It is like ghosts. The same way that in, you know, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and there are all of these parks. Um, there, you know, in schools and areas, there's Shawnee, there's Iroquois, there's Cherokee Park. Um, you know, there's like just all these different native names all around our city, but where are the people? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it is like ghosts and the people are here, you know, they're here, but still as, you know, I'm sure listeners know, you know, in schools, we still learn about native people as if they are, are you know, an, an artifact of the past as a, as opposed to living, breathing humans who remain and, you know, survive in spite of this legacy of violence and displacement. And another thing I thought was interesting in the book that not, not, I guess not interesting, but like, well, there's, there's that the, there's a quick mention, I think at one point of, um, of the, the children going to school, you know, Caleb and Anna, and I, what do they say? Like, maybe they go to school during the winter, I think. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. During the winter. Right. Right. Um, when, you know, there's nothing to pick or plant. And so I immediately thought about, um, you know, when I see school during a time period, you know, like this, it's like, well, this would have been around the time that native children would have been being put in re-education to strip them of their language and their culture. And, you know, so so while these children, these white children are being schooled in one way, who knows how many miles away, may, maybe not many from where they are, Native children are having a very different education. And, you know, and it's like as white readers, as white writers, how do we 
we're, we're overall just unprepared to deal with those kind of discussions because in stories like this, you know, the, all the ugliness is omitted because what, what would this book be? What would Sarah Plain and Tall be if we told the, if even for one paragraph, there was the truth about the re-education happening, you know, however many miles away, because then how are Anna and Caleb heroes then? Not that they're her heroic in this story necessarily, but there are protagonists whose lives we're following and whose situations we're supposed to empathize with. What do we then think of them when they, if they were to tell the truth, even for a paragraph to say, oh yeah, and then I go to school here, but those native kids that I don't give a crap about whose you know lives have been torn apart, they're over there. Well, we don't love them very much anymore now, do we? Mm -hmm. We wouldn't love Anna and Caleb. We wouldn't love Sarah. We wouldn't love their father. We wouldn't care about you know anything they're going through. And that's part of the mythology of white supremacy, right? Is that we only tell part of the story that maintains us as good, innocent people. Because if we were to tell the truth, the truth is so hideous that we can't even bear to look at it ourselves. So that that's always so, it, it's just there, you know, it's there. And, it, and you see it now, you see it then. It's just every page that we write where we're not telling the full truth is not just obscuring the experiences and the blood, you know, and, and lives lost of the people that colonialism has, you know, decimated, but our, our sense of, of, of ourselves and as white people and the truths that we're not able to tell. It's, it's an obfuscation of mass, of mass uh, proportions, you know, because can we ever be proud of who we are? You know, and, and I, I would say, you know, <laughs> no, yeah. no, I, I can't be proud of Sarah or Caleb or Anna or their father. It's like, yeah, good for you for surviving. Right. But, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it, it was, it was, that was like the, the worst part for me was thinking about the schooling. Yeah. How it, we're unable to be honest because we wouldn't like them very much, would we? No. And I think it's, this is, this conversation is a good reminder of the importance of being critical of all kinds of historical fiction books, mm -hmm. because I do think that we have this tendency, like, and look, I'm, I'm in no way defending Laura Ingalls Wilder and the Little House on the Prairie series here, but I do think that like, in some ways, that series and that author has borne like 100% of the brunt of the responsibility for this conversation because she makes more explicit references to dealings with Native individuals in her books. But there are so many other stories, including Sarah Plain and Tall, that have echoes and context in these exact same situations and carry the legacy of the exact same historical shame and white supremacy in them. And we don't talk about that. And so I, I just think it's important whenever we're reading books about historical periods to be thinking about these kinds of things. And like, what is the legacy of white supremacy in this story? What elements of historical context are we missing here? Um, what's being hidden from us? And I think uh, just not to sort of like pin all of our shame and anger about these kinds of things to one author or one book, because there's plenty of shame to go around. <laughs> well, and I think that's also just a prime strategy yeah. of white supremacist myth-making is, you know, pick one scapegoat so that we don't have to tell the whole truth about how this is, like I said, um, obfuscation of mass proportions. If we just make it about Little House on the Prairie, then that's one thing we're willing to sacrifice so that we can maintain the rest of this you know, fantasy. But yeah, I mean, it's, 
and you know, and I know that there's folks out there, white folks who get so angry about these type of lens being applied to children's books. You know, it's like, well, you can't read anything anymore and da da da. And it's like, well, no, no one's asking you to take Sarah plain and tall out in your backyard and burn it. But what kind of reader are you if you're reading historical fiction as as an escape from reality? Yeah. <laughs> what is historical fiction? It's not an escape from reality. It's uh, you know, it that's it's it's supposed to be history, but that just it always is, you know, it gives away that the readers who, you know, are not looking for real history, they're looking for fan fiction. Right which is so much of what we learn about this country and you know our history is is just fan fiction. We so okay, so then you're admitting to me that you read Sarah Plain and Tall to feel good about yourself as a white person in America and why are you only reading to feel good about yourself? Um that's just an odd for me. It's just an odd reason to read a book anyway, but especially historical fiction. Um you know, are you interested in history or not? Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Very good question for historical fiction readers to consider. I personally don't read a lot of historical fiction outside of the podcast, but I do think these are all really important things to consider when we're reading about history. And a very interesting element of all of this that I was so like, it went so far over my head when I was a kid reading this book. And I did a little bit of research on after after finishing Sarah Plain and Tall for this conversation is the prevalence of mail order brides on the prairie during this time period. Yeah. It so blew my mind because when I read this book as a kid, it missed me entirely that Caleb and Anna's father has placed an ad looking for a wife. Like that's literally mm-hmm. what he does. And I actually wrote down the conversation that he has with Anna about this, Papa says, I've placed an advertisement in the newspapers for help. And Anna says, you mean a housekeeper? Because this family like does seem to have some measure of privilege. They had a housekeeper previously. And Papa says, no, a wife. Like very explicit, like very clear Mm -hmm. what's going on. And as an eight, seven, six-year-olds reading this book, I didn't, that just like didn't hit me in any specific kind of way. And now as an adult, I read it and I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And so I did a little bit of research about this, and I'll include links in the show notes for this episode, but because there were so many men that moved west during this time period, and again, we've discussed the atrocities that took place in order to make this happen. There were so many men that moved west to get to this, you know, this mystical in their mind prairie. The ratio of men to women, of white men to white women in this area was sometimes as crazy as wild as 200 men to one woman whoa yes so that is why men like anna and caleb's father would place these ads in newspapers and catalogs and magazines that would go out to like all corners of the u.s (sighs) seeking wives and i'm sure that caleb and anna's father is not in an unusual situation childbirth was even more dangerous during this time period than it is now. They had very few resources. They didn't have help. And so I'm sure there were many men who found themselves with these children and no help to take care of them. And so I found that there was this one newspaper called The Matrimonial News that was like extremely popular in the late 19th century. And I actually found a few like real examples of actual ads that were published that I wanted to share. Nice. That are like, it's just, I can't believe that that this actually happened. So here's one. 
wanted someone to love who will be true and sweet and not only a darling dove but truly a wise helpmate Ugh. she must be of noble birth whose worth could not be told as misers count their sordid worth of stocks and bonds and gold so that one's you know you could call that one poetic or whatever <laughs> here's another one two good-looking young men in a missouri town having money at their disposal would be pleased to correspond with two jolly young ladies object a quality time and its results Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then there are some that like, you know, are v much more straightforward. Like I have this many children. This is what I look like. This is what I'm looking for. But this was a thing that was very common in the late 19th century. And this was not something that I ever learned about in history class. And it's sort of like, you know, a very old school version of online dating. Online dating. Yeah. 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 I mean, things change, but things also stay the same. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. I yeah. thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, they're like, <laughs> we, <laughs> we got to get some women out here. What do we do? That's wild. I mean, you know, it was also, it it was sad to me that I, yes, because also that obviously that went way over my head as a kid too. And also it's just stated with such casualness. That, you know, it's just like, I think reading, it's like, you know, you're a kid and you're taking these, you're taking what you're told. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's something they did. Cool. Yeah. Got it. Well, and later you know, on, they talk about how their neighbors also met that way, which I yeah. didn't pick up on when I was a kid either. But Anna, like very casually and sort of offhandedly is like, oh yeah, like that's how, you know, Maggie showed up after her husband wrote an ad for her too. It was very normal to them. Right. So they're like, great, we'll get ours too. We'll unbox her when she gets here. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but I think the, the what also went over my head was, you know, the whole premise of this, right, is like, or like, at least for the children, their their emotional premise is like, is Sarah going to stay? Right. But what I missed is like, Sarah was always going to stay. She said at one point, you know, it's like, okay, was she, is she going to stay with them? You know, maybe. But like, Sarah had to come to the prairie at some point. You know, she, her brother, she was living with her brother and he got married. I think it was towards the end where they kind of reveal that, you know, where she, you know, the, the home isn't hers anymore. The wife moved in and she's like homeless. So Sarah's got to stay. Sarah doesn't have anywhere to go. And I think, you know, that was, that, that was heavy. You know, that, that was, that was really sad because she was, you know, it's like the, these children, this idea of choice in their lives, you know, is very, you, you know, you think adults are able to do whatever they want, right? But as a woman, even as a white woman, you know, she had a lot more choice in her life than than women of color. But, uh, you know, but still, like, she was going to be homeless uh, if she didn't answer an ad in a newspaper and go see some, you know, live with a man who might potentially kill her, <laughs> you know, yeah. use her. So, yeah, I mean, the layers of, of choice in books, in literature, in history is just always, you know, I guess that's also one of those questions that we ask ourselves as we're reading his, his historical fiction, but also, you know, just fiction in general is like, who has power in this story? Who has more choice? Who has more choice over their lives? And, uh, you know, and Sarah had more than some folks and and less than, than, than men. Um, so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The whole notion that she would be expected to move out of her house because her brother who I think the the understanding is that their parents have passed away and so it's just the two mm -hmm. of them left and the notion that she would just be expected to move out because he'd gotten married it was such like a nuanced I guess expression of the patriarchal family structures 
as they were set up during this time period that like, oh, so one woman moved in. So you need to move out. out. Right. Right. Like one in one out policy, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was really fascinating. And I'm sure I've read that before and maybe taken it for granted. And I did grow to really love and care about Sarah in this book. And so maybe I just like felt it a little bit harder for her because I was rooting for her. Mm -hmm. But to your point about choice, I found one sort of think piece about this book, which I'll link in the show notes. It's called What Children's Literature Teaches Us About Money, Patricia McLaughlin's Sarah Plain and Tall. And there are a lot of really interesting observations in that piece about the family's financial arrangement and how much money they have, how much money Sarah has, and like the degree to which this was a financial agreement or not. But one other line that I pulled out that I thought was kind of illuminating was this. It's refreshing that this is entirely Sarah's choice. Although in many ways, Jacob and the children choose first. If they hadn't liked her, she would have had to return to Maine and figure out what to do with herself. So she responds to Caleb and Anna's dad's ad She's very straightforward about herself. She's like, this is who I am. This is what I look like. I'm plain and tall. Like, this is what I'm into. I have a cat. And they invite her to come. And she agrees to come conditionally for a month to kind of like see how things go. And I guess I do feel like it is, it's interesting having read a lot of books written for kids um, and written over like a very broad range of years for the podcast. I do appreciate the fact that like, once she gets there, she does seem to have a lot of choice as far as like how she wants to engage with the family, how she, mm-hmm. how long she wants to stay, if she wants to stay at all. I do think you're right. Like she wasn't going anywhere. I mean, where is she going to go? She has no other mm-hmm. options. But I do think she's a cool character and that like she shows up and she's basically like, I'm going to do it. Like we're going to do this my way. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed that about her. What were your thoughts about her once you got to know her? Yeah, I mean, I I think... I'm, I'm like in my memory of her, you know, the, of reading this as a, as a child, I always, I think I like had like a, a wilder, I think I might've fused her with like other characters in my head because I wasn't prepared for the quietness of this book. And I was just very surprised by it. But like the one scene that released, because another word I learned from this book is Dune when I was a kid um, reading that, I was like, what are Dunes? You know, I, you know, I'd been to the beach, but I didn't know that word. Um, and so I, when I got to the, when they were talking about sand dunes, I was like, wait, no, I do remember this book. I kept having moments of that as I was reading this. And yeah, the, her, you know, kind of rolling, you know, rolling down the the mountain of hay. And like, I liked the relationship between her and, you know, the children's father where, you know, they're both like, she's not exactly shy. She's more reserved. I think their father is shy and she's just more kind of like, you know, I, I speak when I have something to say. Um, which I relate to that in, in in a lot of ways. But she, yeah, she she does things the way she wants. And I, another part that stuck with me that I remembered was uh, her shaking her fist at the the vultures that were coming for the the baby lamb. I think they found like a, a dead lamb out in the field, and her shaking her fist up. And you know, it's kind of like this difference between her coming from Maine to out on the prairie, where it's kind of you know, that also kind of gave me the, you know, like, oh, the white supremacist tingles, like, eh, what's going on here? You know, it's like, oh, we're out on the prairie where things are wild, Sarah, you don't Mm -hmm. understand, you know? But also I grew up in Kentucky in, you know, not, not a rural area. I was in Louisville still, but we, we had, you know, a couple acres of land and I was a wild child always, you know, running around barefoot. And that was me. 
but and I and I kind of had a similar experience, you know, sometimes when my friends like from the suburbs would, you know, would come and like come to my house and they were kind of like, you're running outside barefoot. What are you doing? And, you know, there would be, you know, a dead animal in our, you know, we had chickens and ducks and like there would be a dead duck and they were like, there's a dead duck you know, laying there. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, it's just kind of like, yeah, we have to put it, we have to bury it, you know, like it, it, it. So I definitely, that resonated with me on both sides of, I felt like Anna in that situation, like Anna and Caleb are kind of looking at her as, you know, like, wow, she just doesn't get it, does she? Like, she's so different that, like, of course that vulture is going to eat that dead lamb, you know, but she makes them bury it. And I felt like both of them in that situation um, where Anna is like, well, yeah, I mean, it's dead. And, you know, that was me as a kid. But then also I still like was very protective of, of my animals as a kid, you know, and I, I would shake my fist at vultures like, you're not going to get my duck, <laughs> you know, even though it's dead. Like I, you know, no, we are going to bury it. So I, I felt like both of them, that kind of embracing of the quote unquote wildness. But then also, uh, you know, Sarah was very, I guess, tender and, uh it's not, I can't really, I don't really have like a word for it, but just her, her sort of protectiveness of, of herself and the things that are important to her, um, you know, her cat, she, you know, she is, she, she, as dad, her, their dad says, you know, at some point, like, you know, you know how Sarah is, she does things her way, you know, she did. And it was, it was quiet still in her way, you know, like if they would have the moments where she would push back about like, where she wouldn't wear the overalls and stuff. And I was always, you know, not quite a girl, you know, growing up. And, you know, that I, so I got that too. And th there was pieces of that where I was like, I see why this is the book that I, that I chose for this podcast, because even though I didn't remember it, there were pieces of it that did stay with me. Yeah. I, I echo all of that. I think the relationships that she forms with Caleb and Anna and their dad are all really special in their own way. Um, there is a tenderness to it, to the way that this family is being built. The note that I made at the very end of the book was that this is, it feels like a family love story. Like when we leave the family, it's like, this is a family that's walking off into the sunset together. Like you mentioned the squall at the beginning of the episode, which is sort of the climax of the book, I guess, when there's this big storm and they're trying to protect the animals. And Sarah is of course like going out into the rain, even though um, the dad says that it's not a good idea and they all kind of come together and it just has this quality of like, oh, this is like a, a family legend that they're going to tell for years to come. Like this mm -hmm. is their first new memory as a family unit that includes Sarah. That's, it just had that like emotional quality to me and that's what brings them all together. And then they're walking off into the sunset and then there are more books to read about them. So I, I did like that feeling. And I was curious about the nature of the relationship between Sarah and the dad, just because I'm 30 years old. I had a lot of questions and we of course don't need to get into the mechanics of it, but I was like, are they sleeping in the same bed? Like what are, what are the, what's the agreement here? Because they do reference several times, like Sarah went to bed and I was like, but what bed? Well, they say at one point that she has her own room. Okay. So they say at one point she has her own room. and I, But I was curious about that too. It's like, so do you stay in your room forever? Yeah. Are you eventually, like, are you a housekeeper right. or are you a wife? Is that the same thing? Because like in the ads that you read, that you found, you know, wife and help were kind of synonyms. Right. So, yeah. Well, and I love what you just said too about her going out into the rain and the emotional. I mean, and I know listeners, like I'm, you are kind of getting the kind of person I am at this point, but like when we talk a bit again about like myth making and, you know, her going out into the rain and she comes back with the roses, right? Like that's, you know, so not only did she rescue, what did she get? She got her shells, she got her cat, 
she got something like she got the like her little knickknacks from her room right. but she brought like armfuls of the roses and other because otherwise they would have been you know destroyed and I was just like, what you just said is so true about like, this is a family being built. We're watching a family being built. We're watching their the myths of their family being built so that in two generations, because we don't hear about what happened to the indigenous people who lived on this land, the only story that will be told about this family is how, oh, one time your great grandmother went out into a, a, a tornado and brought all the roses in. And that's the only story that we carry with us as white people moving through history. And that's just, yeah, that's how it goes. There's Stories like that in my family, you know, where we we hear about the roses coming in from the rain. We don't hear about the people who got destroyed like those roses that they were left outside. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, I'll mention one other plot point briefly before we start to wrap up because it is super important. And that is that Sarah insists on learning to drive the wagon by herself, which I was very into. I was like, yes, you push back. You tell him that you are going to learn to drive the wagon on your own. You wear those overalls, you ride the horse, you drive the wagon, do it all. And she does eventually learn. And Caleb is very concerned that this means that she's going to try to leave. He's really scared when she takes the wagon into town alone, which seems to be like unheard of. Like it seems as though both Caleb and Anna are like, a woman doing this? Like why? Why would you do that? And Caleb seems to be worried that she's going to either like just disappear or that she's going to go into town to buy a train ticket to leave. And she decides to stay. She comes back and Caleb is like very relieved. And Anna says to her, we thought you might be thinking of leaving us because you miss the sea. Because there's a lot of talk throughout the book about how Sarah grew up in Maine by the ocean. She loves the ocean. And Sarah says, no, I will always miss my old home. But the truth of it is I would miss you more. Which is kind of a callback to a line she says earlier in the book, which is there is always something to miss no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. Which I did think was super poignant. And resonant, I think, to most people in most stages of life. And a lot of Sarah's experience did resonate with me just as an adult woman, like moving to a new place. As a lot of listeners know, my husband and I moved mid-pandemic, not even mid-pandemic, very early on. We moved from Brooklyn to Philadelphia in April of 2020, right at the beginning of all of this. And it's been really hard to make new friends because we've been inside and being very careful on social distancing. And I think sort of applying this story to my personal life and, and reading the story through that lens, just realizing that like there have been days when I've missed my old life and I've just like wanted my old life back, but then there's always going to be something to miss. And like, it's natural to feel that way and change is difficult and we adjust to it in different ways throughout our lives. So I guess, yeah, I saw Sarah in a different way because of the experience that I've been going through personally over the last year. And like, maybe it would just be better to go back, like to disappear into the old life. And maybe it's just better to like stick it out and figure it out. So yeah, I thought that those lines were really meaningful. Yeah, no, definitely. In you know, her insisting on, on driving the wagon and then fixing the roof too. You know, I, I liked that. Yeah. Um, that she insisted on fixing the roof and then the roof held. And it's kind of like, this whole pandemic, you know, we've talked about how, you know, like, oh, essential workers and, you know, who's, you know, who's so important, but then as we, you know, and like women's labor, but then we see that there's massive losses in women's jobs, particularly black and brown women. Like those are the people who are losing, who are having to exit the workforce to take care of children. And then also still doing all the, you know, the, the work that keeps this place going, you know, so that I, her fixing the roof and then the squall coming and the roof holding, it's like, that's such a, you know, metaphor for 
for you know women just keeping things together. I, I also you know with you talking about the uh, the wagon again that that was interesting to me because so it's I, I I don't know I really disliked Caleb in that in that instance which you know he's a child obviously but when they said uh, you know about riding the wagon you know or driving the wagon there's a, a a page I just found it while I was flipping through just now where you know, Sarah's saying, I've never driven, driven a wagon. And Maggie said, I can teach you, you know, the other woman, the mail order bride. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can Anna and Caleb and Jacob. And so Sarah turns to Anna and she's like, can you, can you drive a wagon? And, she, and you know, Anna, you know, Sarah, no, Anna, you know, Anna's like, you know, yes. And Caleb too. So Sarah's feeling like, why should I not be, why should I not drive the wagon when the children can drive the wagon? Yeah. You know, like Maggie can drive the wagon. So like, why am I, you know, she's trying to find a way where she can, you know, have some control in her life and, you know, some mobility. But that part where, you know, once she does learn how, which, you know, I, I appreciated that the father was like, yeah, I'll teach you. You know, it's, it's fair. And, you know, I'll teach you. And But Caleb's saying, tell her no. He's saying to his father, because Anna doesn't say tell her no. Caleb says, tell her no. You know, and they say like, and then not quite teasingly, but like, we could tie her up. You know, it's like, boy, what? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You can't tie her up. Chill. But like, yeah, but um, but him saying, tell her no, like Caleb already as a boy, as a child knows that his father can control her. He does have a say in what she can and cannot do. And it's like lucky for Sarah, the dad, you know, is is not that type of dude, or at least, you know, as far as we can tell, because we really don't know a lot about him. But, uh, you know, but and then in that kind of vein, also, I really appreciated how how the dad took on some of her vocabulary, right? I don't even know how to say, like, like what she says, Aya. Like Aya you know, or something. Aya, Aya, yeah. Like, that's how they say yes in Maine. And he immediately, like, you know, took that on as part of, like, their family lexicon. And so, you know, it's like these two ways of being kind of, you know, fusing. But yeah, you know, her her driving the wagon, it's like, look, the kids are driving the wagon. I'm, I'm going to drive the wagon, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of, like I said, like, little subtle things that I feel like a lot of, ch- I mean, I certainly missed, obviously, as a child. Um, so it was very illuminating to go back over it as an adult and see all these little, you know, just, you know, intricacies of power and privilege and, and, you know, agency. Yeah. Yeah. On the whole, how would you characterize this rereading experience? How much would you say does the book hold up? How much does it disappoint you? I know we've touched on lots of different topics over the last hour, but I'd love, I'd love to hear sort of your summary version of all of your thoughts as to how the book kind of compares to your memories of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's typical. It's typical. It's it's what I would expect from a book like this. It's definitely interesting compared to a lot of other books of this time where like little house books, there's also another couple ones that I read. I remember very vividly reading in fourth grade where they talked about, um, that's where I learned the word massacre. And it was all about Native Americans massacring people. And I didn't know how to say it. So I said massacre in my head because that's what I thought it was. But then I learned later and, you know, that's what it was. And, um, you know, so there's a, there's a spectrum, right. Of books like this, like the ones that are very violent, physically violent, that if that's on the page, there's violent language. Um, And then there's the spectrum where the violence is happening in through the form of erasure. And that's, that, so that's where Sarah Plain and Tall falls on that spectrum. The, the erasure is just, you know, it's very hard to read as an adult, but but I do always appreciate, you know, quiet writing. Like you said, you know, how short it is. Uh, uh, it kind of made me as a writer just kind of reframe the way I'm imagining, you know, books for young younger people and that, you know, not everything has to be, like you said, like big and dramatic. Uh, you know, things things can be simple and small and that there's 
the quiet nature and the observative nature of Anna, I think really resonates with children and like just how little, how little events are, are very big to children. And I mean, they certainly were in my life. So, uh, you know, the things that we remember aren't always the big things. So with, you know, both in life and in books, obviously, <laughs> because it, I feel that way about, about this book in general. So yeah, that's my, my summary, I guess. What else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to listeners, maybe more than Sarah Plain and Tall? Um, what have I been reading? I have been reading, let me look at my nightstand because I, I have a huge pile of books. Um, I've, well, I've been for nonfiction reading, I've been reading the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop by Felicia Rose Chavez, and that is excellent. Recommend everybody read that, not just people who run writing workshops, but um, writers as well. It's really, it's, you know, there's sometimes I'll read books on like theory and things that it's, you know, it's like, okay, all right. You know, I feel like I've seen versions of this before, but that book really blew my mind. What else? I've got Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, which I know is a little older, but I really, really love that book um, by Meg Medina. And that's more for, you know, younger folks too. And then I've got over here, Ways to Make Sunshine by Renee Watson, which is also for younger readers, which I just love. I'm reading that one out loud to my daughter and it's, it's really just a lovely book. Yeah. I'll have to check her out. I haven't read her before, but I will include links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. I will also include links to your books, Olivia. And I know you have a new one coming out in March of 2022, The Truth About White Lies. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that book so that our listeners can get excited about it and make plans to read it for next year. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited about that one too. Um, the Truth About White Lies is, uh, I've been writing that book for many years now um, and it's undergone so many different forms. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm going to have to like practice talking about it because there's so many piece, pieces of it that have changed so much over the years, like, you know, between agents, between editors. Uh, it was it's a, it was a hard sell for people because it talks about white supremacy and it's a contemporary YA, you know, novel where uh, the main character, Shania, is uh, grieving for the loss of her beloved grandmother. And she has come to a new school in a new city and she's kind of relearning who she is. And uh, she's learning about her history um, kind of unwittingly at first. And then uh, things start really becoming impossible to ignore kind of the, the truth about her grandmother, about her own choices that she's made in her new city and the people that she's um, meeting with. And she's kind of torn between two groups of friends. And, uh, and it, this isn't the type of like book about, you know, racist people, you know, like right white racist kids, you know, um, this isn't about police violence. This is, you know, this is about like the little casual ways that we do and think racist things and how it impacts us and the people around us. It's quiet in its own way, but there's also, um, violence in this book. But uh, I always tell readers there are there you know there are no racial racial slurs in this book. It, it, this is not that kind of book. This is a uh, it's kind of hard to talk about. Yeah, it, I, I've got to work on it. But but yeah, the truth about white lies. It's out next year with Little Brown. Um, we're gonna do the cover reveal pretty soon, I think. But uh, but yeah, that's that's next year. Thank you. Sounds really great, and I will be on the lookout for the cover reveal. And we appreciate the sort of early sneak preview as you uh, are talking about next year's book. But I do appreciate your time as well. Uh, I loved talking about Sarah Plain and Tall with you, um, and I just I appreciate your thoughtfulness and taking the time to read it. And it was just really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. This has been really great way to start my day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 
SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>